There are some interesting paradoxes or contrasts in the Bible. For instance, we are told to live, I must die. We are told to receive, I must give. As a matter of fact, there is a sense in which even Jesus is paradoxical. Now, we know that he is a uniter, but he also is a divider. Jesus is a uniter in that he brings us to himself. When we trust Christ as Savior, we are united with him. The Bible says that he is the head and we are the body. The scripture tells us that when we become believers trusting in him, that we are united to each other as brothers and sisters. I have had the privilege of preaching in Russia and Cuba and other places, and wherever I have been, I have met brothers and sisters in Christ, even though it sometimes seems like unlikely places, because the Lord unites us. So we know that the Lord is a uniter. He also is a divider. People oftentimes ask the question, why is there such division today? And it is my belief because of Jesus. Jesus is the great divider. For instance, he divides history. There is B.C. and A.D. He divides it. Unless, of course, you've read some of the modern books, and it's B.C.E. and C.E., before the Common Era and the Common Era. I've often wondered concerning that, since in many of the books they're no longer referring to B.C. and A.D., but before the Common Era and the Common Era. What was the event that ushered us into the Common Era? And it's strange to me that it corresponds to the life of Jesus. But that's another story, and I'll not get into that. Jesus divides history. He divides life and death. There are those who are pro-life and those who are pro-choice. He is the divider. He also divides marriage. There are those who are committed to traditional marriage and those who are committed to same-sex marriage. And again, there is a division with which there is no compromise. I'm sure that you're aware that this last week there is a controversy that has arisen concerning the president of Chick-fil-A who said that uh, he believed in traditional marriage, marriage being between a man and a woman. And so a controversy has arisen as a result of that statement. The mayor of Chicago, the mayor of Boston, the mayor of Chicago said, I believe it was the mayor of Chicago, said that, that Chick-fil-A values are not Chicago values. Well, I already knew that. <laughs> so that wasn't a big stretch for me, but that became a controversy because of his position. Now, I read in the paper yesterday that the founder of Amazon.com had given $2.5 million to uh, to support same-sex marriage, but I'm not aware of any controversy erupting as a result of that. So you see, there is this division that takes place. Our worldview is different. If one is committed to the Lord, there is a worldview. There is a scriptural worldview. So there is a division. Now, for me, as a result of what I just said, I'm not going to buy anything from Amazon.com this week, but I am going to eat more chicken. Well, today as we continue our study in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, he gives to us several contrasts that I want you to see. So take your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse number 1. Now, as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. 
For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. Now, there are several contrasts in these verses I want you to see. First of all, there is the contrast between knowledge and ignorance. Now, ladies and gentlemen, God does not put a premium on ignorance. I know that sometimes there are some who think that is the case. It is not. For instance, concerning the Corinthians, they were in conflict because of their ignorance concerning spiritual gifts. And so the Apostle Paul wrote to them, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware or I do not want you to be ignorant concerning spiritual gifts. And then the Thessalonians, to whom Paul is writing here, They were upset or they were troubled as a result of their loved ones who had died. What happened to them? Were they going to have any place in the return of Christ? And so they were troubled as a result of that. Paul wrote to them and said, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. He said, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning those who have died in the Lord. So Paul here contrasts knowledge and ignorance with three different phrases. The first being times and epochs in verse number one. Now, as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Now, folks, here's what I want to say concerning this. As the people of God, we are to understand the times in which we live. As the people of God, you are to understand the times in which you live. The Bible says in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32, And of the sons of Issachar, men who understand the, understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do. Men who understood the times as to what Israel should do. That's what we are to be. We need to understand the times. Now, there is a time for repentance. I hear people sometimes say, well, one of these days I'm, I'm going to turn to the Lord. One day I'm going to repent. One day I'm going to be saved. One day I'm going to straighten out and so forth. Well, when are you going to do that? Well, when I decide. No, you're not. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. Folks, you need to understand the time, and there is a limit to opportunity. You see, we respond to the Lord when the Holy Spirit draws us. We respond to the Lord when the Holy Spirit 
draws us to him. So that is the reason the invitation time is so important, I believe. And that is the reason that you ought to be praying during the invitation time rather than trying to get to lunch first. There is a time for repentance. There is a time for action, a time to pray, time to act. For instance, when uh, Israel was freed from Egyptian bondage, the Egyptians began to pursue them, and so the people of Israel began to pray. And the Bible says in Exodus fourteen fifteen, Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. God said, this is not a time to pray. This is a time to act. Ladies and gentlemen, when you know God's will, you don't need to pray about it anymore. You need to act on it. When you know what is God's will, then you do what God's will requires. So there is a time to pray, but there's also a time to act. And then Paul is saying there is a time for the return of Christ. Now, I know that the world is ignorant of that largely and ignores that. Peter said in 2 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4, Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Peter is saying that when it is time for the Lord to return, there are going to be those people as there have always been. What is this stuff about the return of Christ? I've heard about this all my life and things just continue as they have always been. So the Lord then is not coming back. You know, it's not a lot difference in the coming of the Lord or the return of the Lord and in his advent or his first coming. There were prophecies concerning the first coming of the Lord, and they were fulfilled. In fact, the scripture says in Galatians 4, 4, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Albert Barnes wrote, the exact period had arrived when all things were ready for his coming. So there were prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah, but people ignored those prophecies. They were ignorant of those prophecies, and yet the prophecies were fulfilled. I don't think it's going to be any different when Jesus returns. And I do not know of any prophecy that remains to be fulfilled before the Lord comes back. The Bible has given us the prophecies. The Bible has given us the signs saying that these things are going to happen, and then the Lord is going to return. I don't know the day that the Lord is going to return, but I don't know any prophecies that yet remain that need to be fulfilled. So he says to us, there are, there are times and epics. Don't be ignorant concerning the times in which you live. And then he says, don't be ignorant concerning the day of the Lord in verse number 2. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. The phrase the day of the Lord occurs 25 times in the scripture. It refers to a schedule of events, not a 24-hour period. John Wolford wrote, The day of the Lord is a period of time in which God will deal with wicked men directly and dramatically in fearful judgment. 
Cheryl Flurry wrote, The day of the Lord begins with the seven-year period known as the tribulation and extends to the creation of the new heavens and new earth. All right, now, let's think about the day of the Lord. The Bible says the day of the Lord is coming. What about it? What are the characteristics of it? Well, the Scripture says, first of all, that it will be unexpected. In verse number 2b, the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Now, the thief does not announce his coming. Otherwise, you would be prepared. And he says the day of the Lord is the same way. It will come like a thief in the night. Now, folks, that has been true in other times of judgment. The flood. Noah had warned the people, preached for 120 years, warning them about the judgment of God that was coming. But they were not prepared. They did not listen. They were not expecting it. And the Bible says the same thing will be true concerning the day of the Lord. In Luke chapter 17, verse 26, And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it shall be also in the days of the Son of Man. So when we are talking about the day of the Lord coming, the Bible says that it is going to be unexpected, just like it was in the times of Noah. It's unexpected. Secondly, it is a time of destruction. In verse number 3. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them. So when we talk about the day of the Lord, it is going to be unexpected and it is going to be a time of destruction. Isaiah wrote in chapter 13, verses 6 and 7, Wail for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt. And Isaiah goes on to say there is going to be destruction in the seas and the vegetation and the islands and the mountains. Everything is going to be affected. It is going to be a time of destruction. Joel says in chapter 1 verse 15, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. All right, so he's talking about the day of the Lord. He said, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning the day of the Lord. He said, it is unexpected. It will be unexpected when it happens. And he said, it is a time of destruction. And then he says, it's inescapable. In verse number 3b. Destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman and a child, and they shall not escape. When the day of the Lord begins, there is no place to run. There is no place to hide. He says that it's like birth pangs that begin. And when the birth pangs begin, the baby's going to come. When Linda was pregnant with Eric, who is our second child, people had me scared to death. They said, you know, that second child will be born. Once the birth pangs begin, three and a half minutes, the kid's there. So when Linda told me, he said, it's time to go to the hospital, scared me to death. I, I jump in the car, grab her. I'm driving as fast as I can. I run every red light between our house and the hospital trying to get her there because I was scared I was going to have to deliver the child. But when, when the birth pains begin, the point that he is making, when the birth pains begin, the child is coming. And what he is saying concerning the day of the Lord is that it is inescapable. When it begins, it is going to happen. So he says, the day of the Lord. Don't want you to be ignorant concerning the day of the Lord. 
And then he said, uh, I don't want you to be ignorant like a thief in the night. Verse number two, for you yourself know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Now, had they known the thief was coming, they would have been prepared. Because the world does not expect him, folks, this is the truth. Because the world is not looking for Jesus to come back, the world is not going to be prepared when he comes back. Brett Butler wrote her autobiography titled Deep Knee in Paradise. She said, I spent the first 20 years of my life waiting for two men I was reasonably certain would never come back. My daddy and Jesus Christ. And I think that that is a reflection of the way the world sees it. They've, the world has heard about the return of Christ and all of that. And by and large, I think the world says that's not going to happen. Things are as they have always been. What Paul is saying is I don't want you to be ignorant concerning the return of Christ. I want you to know about the day of the Lord. I want you to know about his return. don't want you to be ignorant concerning that. Now, the second contrast is between the sober and the drunk in verse number 6. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. Now, the, the believer here as, is depicted as being sober. And Vine says this denotes of sound mind, hence self-control. So what he is saying here is that the believer in a world of confusion, of uncertainty, is confident. Is that true with you? I want it to be. Folks, we live in a very troubled world. And it's easy for us to become depressed about it. It's easy for us to get down about it. But what he is saying is that the child of God has confidence even in the midst of this troubled world because of the word of God. Let me tell you what the Bible says. I'm just going to mention this is sort of a parenthesis here. Let me mention some things the Bible says about you if you are a child of God. It says, first of all, in John 1, 12, that you are a child of God. Now, that's pretty impressive, isn't it? That if you have been born again, you are a child of God. In John chapter 15, verse 15, it says that you are a friend of Jesus. Jesus said, I don't call you slaves. Slave doesn't know what his master's doing. He says, I call you friends. You are my, now that's you. If you've been born again, that's you. You are a child of God. You're a friend of Jesus. The Bible says in Romans 3, 24, that you have been justified. That means legally speaking, God has declared you as just. As someone who says, justified just as if I'd never sinned. That's what the Lord has done for you. In Romans chapter 8, verse number 1, he says that you are not condemned. In Romans chapter 8, verse 17, you're a joint heir with Christ. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse number 4, you've been chosen by God. So he said that the believer, the sober person, is confident because of the word of God and he is equipped. Look at verse number 8. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. He says that you are equipped and that you have the breastplate of faith that fends off the arrows of Satan, and the helmet of salvation, which means you are secure in the future. So that is the believer. He says there is a contrast between the drunk and the, and the, um, and the sober person, and you are the believer. You're the sober person. Then he mentions the unbeliever who is depicted as drunk. Metaphorically, Vine says, this speaks of the effect upon men of partaking of the abominations of the Babylonian system. All right, now, the unsaved person, Paul is saying, he's like a drunk person. 
Well, what are the characteristics of a drunk person? Well, a drunk person is, is oblivious as to what's going on around him. He's drunk. He's oblivious as to what's happening around him. But the unbeliever is also oblivious as to what's happening around him. I am astounded sometimes that people see what is going on in the world and make no spiritual connection. And that, that amazes me. That we see the things that are happening all around us and we make no spiritual connection. We don't see it as a spiritual issue. He says the unbeliever is oblivious as to what is happening just as the drunk is. He said the drunk has been deceived by alcohol. That's the reason that a drunk, and I, and I know none of you have ever been around one, but if you were ever around someone who is drunk, they think they're cool, they think they're hilarious when they're actually obnoxious. They've been deceived. And the Bible says that the unbeliever has been deceived by Satan. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. The, the only way that I can explain people's response to some things, because to me it is so obvious, is that they've been blinded by Satan. There are some people who are just absolutely blinded by Satan, and they cannot see because they've been blinded. That is the drunk. That is the unbeliever. And the drunk is asleep to the dangers that are before him or her, just as the unbeliever is asleep to the dangers that stand before them. So they are asleep. So there's this contrast between those who are sober and those who are drunk. And he says that as a believer, you are sober. The unbeliever is like a drunk. The third contrast is between wrath and salvation. In verse number 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Now, that brings up the question to me that I've had asked numerous times is, will the saved person, will the believer go through the tribulation period? And I mentioned that last week. Now, godly people disagree concerning that question. It is my belief that the believer will not go through the tribulation. And there are some reasons that I believe that. First of all, if you're born again, your destiny is deliverance. If you look in chapter 1, verse number 10, Paul wrote, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So he says that, that those who have been born again are delivered from the wrath to come. Therefore, I do not believe that the believer will go through the tribulation because of the nature of the church. And the scripture says in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment. Well, the tribulation is a time of judgment. So he says that we do not go through a time of judgment. The tribulation is a time of judgment. And then also because of the nature of the return of Christ. In Titus 2.13, Paul wrote, Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. So folks, what is it that we are supposed to be looking for? The tribulation? 
What are we supposed to be looking for? Judgment? We are supposed to be looking for the glorious return of Christ. I'm I'm not looking for the tribulation. I'm not looking for judgment. I'm looking for the return of Christ. And Paul says that is our blessed hope. So in Christ, I do not believe that we go through the tribulation period. And there are types in the Bible that indicate to me that we are not going through the tribulation period. For instance, Noah, I think, is a type of the church. And, and you recall in the story of Noah that the flood did not come until what happened? Noah was in the ark. I believe that Lot is a picture of the church, a type of the church. And judgment did not come on Sodom until what happened to Lot. He was removed. So I do not personally believe that we will experience the wrath. And yet the lost person, in a sense, is always under judgment. Now, I think that without Christ, the lost person is unfulfilled. One theologian, I believe it was Karl Barth, said that man is made with a godlike blank, that there is within inside man uh, an emptiness, a blank that is in the form of God, and nothing will satisfy other than God. So now he is unfulfilled. Later, he will experience the tribulation and ultimately... He will experience hell. So that's what Paul is saying here, I think. So he says we're to encourage each other. Verse number 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. Paul is saying as we face the last days, as we face the return of Christ, we are to encourage each other. We stimulate each other, the Bible says, to good works and love. Hebrews 1.24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good. Do you have that effect on other believers? Do you stimulate them to good deeds and to love? That's what he's saying. We are to stimulate each other. We are to encourage each other. In Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Folks, your absence... Your absence within the, 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 the people of God, from the people of God, is discouraging. And I'm not just talking about attendance. I'm talking about in, in life, in life. You need to be involved. When you are involved, then you are an encouragement to other believers. And then he says we stimulate and encourage by our, by our hope for what's ahead. Hebrews 20, 10, 25, all the more as you see the day drawing near. There's a day of judgment coming for those without Christ, according to the Scripture, and a day of joy coming for those who know the Lord. So, let me conclude. What do, what do we know? We know that the Lord is coming back. That's what the Bible says. Now, I know that there's ignorance and there's denial and, and, and that people ignore it and so forth. I know that. But according to the Scripture, Jesus is coming back, and there is a consequence. There's wrath for the unsaved. And there's deliverance for the same. So according to what Paul is saying, it's important that you're prepared. Let me tell you a quick little story. Linda and I had been to Israel. We were coming home. We had taken a group over and we were coming home. And when we came to the airport, everyone was tired. You know, you've been over there touring all of this time. And then there's a long flight back and everybody was tired. Until we got off the plane. And when we got off the airplane... Things changed dramatically. At that time, family members were out waiting, and 
and uh, friends were there to greet them. And I saw these old, tired, droopy faces begin to smile as they welcomed each other and hugged and began to talk about the trip that they had. There was a soldier that was there, and, and he kept wandering around. And so finally I went over to him, and I said, can I help you? And he said, uh, my wife is supposed to meet me, and said, I don't see her. Could I borrow your phone? I said, you sure can. So he took my phone and called, and then he handed it back to me, and then I saw him walking away by himself. As I watched that scene, I thought, you know, it's going to be that way when the Lord comes back. They're going to be those people who are having a great time. It is going to be a joyous reunion as they are reunited with family members and friends and so forth. But for some, it's going to be a time of sorrow. That's what Paul is saying. Folks, the return of Jesus is the blessed hope for the believer. It will be a time of joy. But for those who do not know Jesus, it is going to be a time of sorrow. So my question to you is simply... If the Lord were to come back today, would you be ready to receive him? Would he receive you? Do you know Jesus? Are you ready to face him? Because he is coming again. He is coming again. Just like he came the first time, he's coming again. Are you ready? Gracious Father in God, I pray that not one person present who has listened fails to hear your word. Father, I pray for those who are not ready to receive you, that today they might be saved, understanding the importance of time, that there is a day of repentance, there is a time for salvation. And Lord, for those with whom the Holy Spirit is dealing, I pray today that they would commit their lives to you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. In just a moment, we're going to stand. The choir's going to sing a hymn of invitation. The staff is going to be here to receive people. If you're here without Jesus today, would you commit your life to him? This could be the day for you. If you're looking for a church home, our doors are open to you. We'd love to have you. Stand with me, please, as we stand and they sing, you come. I'll greet you as you do. Thank you.